We are finishing today. It's going to be, we're going to be done. No matter what happens, we're going to push through it and finish it up. We've been doing this kind of survey of the Bible. We looked, we've looked at every book of the Bible, 66 books, but in like rapid fashion. It took us, I don't know, four weeks or something. Um, and the, our goal is to just help the Bible be more familiar to you. Give you the 30,000 foot view of passages, of books that maybe are not, kind of like off the main thoroughfare. And I would probably say... Well, you tell me if you agree. I think the section of the Bible that is the most opaque, the least known, the most ignored, and just unfamiliar is probably the Minor Prophets. Anybody want to compete with that? Anybody want to say, no, it's not that, it's something else? Minor Prophets? Okay. Like, my guess is that you guys don't frequently, naturally, normally have your quiet times in Nahum or something, right? Or... You know, you don't know how to say Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however, however you do it. It tends to be unknown land. And so we're going to look at the 12 minor prophets. And here's my suggestion. This is simple, but I want to encourage you to do this thing first. Memorize their 12 names. Okay? There's something about knowing. It's kind of like, you know, when you meet people, you don't know their name. It's hard to kind of go any deeper. And you just kind of avoid them because now everything gets awkward. Okay? If you know the minor prophets... And that's just like the, the, entry, the entry point, right? So here's how they go. We're going to do a real quick flash memorization. Probably won't finish it. Memorization requires repetition. But repeat after me. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Okay, now don't repeat it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Your turn. Okay, that's four. Okay, there's three of these. Three sets of four. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Anybody know what comes next? Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah. You got it? Blendy's got the dance. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. And by the way, I might be pronouncing Habakkuk wrong. Who cares? Nobody knows how to say it, right? So it doesn't really matter. Just say it. Okay, so it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Your turn. Then Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So all eight. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Can you do all eight? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Okay, and then there's one more set of four. It's the Z's. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah, Haggai. And I'm not saying any of these right either. Haggai, Haggai, Haggai. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay? If you just take a few minutes, right, you can, you can lock those things out. And then at least this opaque black box that's like hidden and scary and unknown maybe begins to get a little bit of light on it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's our 12 minor prophets. Okay? <coughs> of the 12, one of them is probably the most familiar to you. Is there any of those 12 that doesn't feel quite so bizarre and weird and un unknown? Jonah. 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 Zechariah. Okay, and the correct answer is Jonah. Absolutely, right? And why, why do we know Jonah? It's a very, very simple reason why... Because it's a story, Robin, right? So you get this sea of like weird things and oracle. And in the midst of all this bizarreness, there's this story, this narrative. Story is the language of the human heart. 
We remember the stories. Everything else is a freak show, but there's at least this little plot with characters and development and tension and rising act, all that kind of stuff, right? So Jonah, we'll start with what we know and we're going to work our way out from there, okay? So what's the story of Jonah? He's supposed to go to Nineveh. What's Nineveh, Robin? Nineveh was, is a pagan city. Yes. And do you know it is the, it's the capital city of a particular nation? Anybody know what, what is the capital of? It's the capital of Assyria. Uh, Roger, your light's on on your phone. Maybe you want that to be true, but your battery's draining even as we speak. Okay, so Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Where, why is Assyria meaningful to us? Conquer the northern. Because they're going to crush the north, okay? So when you hear Assyria, when you hear Nineveh, think Assyria. When you hear Assyria, think boo, okay? Jonah gets a lot of, Jonah gets a bad rap for, you know, not wanting to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel to them, to, to bring, a, bring a message. But, of course, they hate Assyria. They are vicious and cruel and mean. They're going to completely eradicate um, Israel. And so, Jonah, what is Jonah's message for them? Repent. Repent. Why not? Why should they repent? Get 40 days and then That's right. In a month and a half, you're all going to die. And rather than going to tell that story, uh, he doesn't want to go because his fear is like, man, if they knew they're going to get destroyed, they might repent. God might show mercy and then he wouldn't destroy them. And that would be really annoying. And so he doesn't want to go. He does not want to go because he just wants them all to choke on their own blood. And he goes, and his message isn't even cry out for mercy. It's simply 40 days and you're dead. And sure enough, sure enough, wouldn't you know it, they repent. And they turn, and God has mercy on them. And sure enough, Jonah is super mad. At the very end of the book, he's like, this is what I, exactly what I warned you would happen. Like, this makes me so mad. And he sits down under this, do you remember his tree? He sits down under this branch. And this gives him shade, and he likes the shade. He's mad about everything, but at least he's got shade. And then God sends a worm, and it eats the root, and the tree dies. And then he's mad about the tree. And God's like, wow, that's interesting. You're mad about a tree dying. But you don't care. There's like 100,000 people that, you know, don't know their left hand from their right that could have been destroyed. And it ends like that. It ends with the sense of, like, just everybody's in a bad mood. Okay? That's the book of Jonah. Now, did you know? That's Jonah. Did you know that Jonah has a sequel? Anybody know? Jonah has a sequel. Anybody know what it is? Nahum. Nahum. Okay, and here's an easy way to remember it. So spell Jonah. J-O-N-A-H, right? Nahum is N-A-H-U-M. They just not, there's not, it's just a coincidence. They just kind of overlap. But Jonah has a sequel of Nahum. And do you know what happens in the sequel? Assyria gets destroyed. Assyria gets destroyed. Okay, so finally Jonah gets what he wanted, right? They, the, the Ninevites repent. They really do. And God shows mercy to them. And grace is extended for like another, I forget the timeline, maybe another hundred years. And then they fall back into their own ways and they are destroyed. So ultimately God's mercy uh, that, he, that he extends under Jonah um, is not re-experienced a couple generations later because they just, they refuse to repent. And so it is with us, right? Are we, you might be in a state of repentance and soft before the Lord. It does not guarantee that your children or your grandchildren will be, right? Although we long that it will be so, right? So that's Jonah, and that's Nahum is the sequel. All right, there's the two, that's your, there's our base camp. What would be the next one that maybe is more familiar to you of the 12? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Where do you want to go next? <laughs> Hosea is pretty well known. Why do you think Hosea is well known, Judy? Or what? He was told to marry a prostitute, and it was like... 
he was marrying Israel. Yes, that's right. So it's, it's a little bit like there's some story to it. There's some narrative to it. And it's just a really weird story. Like, can you imagine your son comes home and says, God, Mom, Dad, I met the girl that God wants me to marry. Oh, she's a prostitute. Yeah. Right? It's very, very strange. Why does God want Hosea to marry a prostitute? What is going on with that? He's trying to show them his love. He's trying to show them his love. Yes. That's half the equation. What's the other half? They're in their own unfaithfulness. And their own unfaithfulness. The message of Hosea is, and pardon me, but it, I mean, the book, is, the book is more startling than I am, okay? But the, the point of Hosea, God is saying, being your God is like being married to a whore. That's the whole book of Hosea. And, it, and it's this lived out picture of what it's like to love someone faithfully who is themselves unfaithful to you. And it's a, it's a stunningly emotional book. Let me show you, let me just show you a little bit in Hosea, because I'm going to have a couple of moments here we get into the text. Go to the end of Hosea. This is, for my money, maybe the most humiliating, um, oh, I don't know, is humiliating the right word? The most ridiculous depiction of God's love for us um, because he, showed, he, he comes off so unbelievably emotionally stormy. And where is it? Let's see. Um, oh, I should have looked this up. Where is it? Is it 10 or 11? Um, oh, sugar. Here it is. Here we go. 11. Hosea 11. Listen to this. Hosea 11. Have you found Hosea, by the way? It's the beginning of the Minor Prophets. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more that I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and I bent down to feed them. This is a man remembering his lover and the early days of their courtship and his kindness towards her and his wooing of her. And what a good job he did. And the fact that she has completely rejected him, completely spurned him, has gone off and had an affair, and he's remembering what he loves about her. And then suddenly, just like a human being, he's overwhelmed with this tsunami of anger and rage. Verse 5, will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn for me. And even if they call to the Most High, he would by no means exalt them. He's so angry. And he just has this spurt of rage. And then in the next second, he collapses. Look at the next verse. Verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebuim? My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I'm a God. I am God, not a man. The Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. He is back and forth in his emotions, having this raging storm over her faithfulness, and he wants to kill her. And he's like, I don't want to kill her. I love her. And I don't know what to do. It's so strange that God would speak as if our love for him moves his needle. You know, it could be like, what does he care? 
What does he care? Does he need us? It's astonishing that he speaks, that he reveals the enormous power that we have over his emotional state, which even sounds heretical as I say it, but it's right here. It's so odd. The one who needs nothing has chosen to need us and to give us the place of dignity in his heart. <gasps> Craziness. Okay, that's Hosea. So we got, we got Jonah, we got Nahum, we got Hosea. Any others familiar to you? Or what's, what's, is there a fourth place? Zechariah for me. Okay, Zechariah. Number one, actually. Zechariah, well, okay. And he is, he, so even though I think that Jonah is the most well-known, Zechariah is also my favorite. Why is Zechariah your favorite? Zechariah is very busy. Exceptionally so. Um, uh, prophecy of the Messiah. Absolutely. Okay, so here's. Say that last part about Jerusalem. Riding into Jerusalem. Yes. Okay. So here's where Zechariah fits in a really important place. If you look at the minor prophets, they're not quite in chronological order, but it's pretty close. If you just guessed that they were in chronological order, you'd be close enough. Okay. The early ones are early. The middle ones are middle. The late ones are late. There's just a little bit of flippiness to it. But the last three, which are which, what again? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Malachi, okay. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those last three are all what we call post-exilic, okay? So do you remember we talking about how, like, the, what is the great big event that the prophets are all interested in? The exile. Right. So Assyria's going to come in and beat up the north. Babylon's going to come in and beat up the south. And this is all this great big event. The prophets are all either writing, hey, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Or they're in the midst of it saying, well, here it is. Or they're saying, well, that sucked, okay? That's all of the prophets are pre-exilic, exilic, or post-exilic, right? And the ones that are post-exilic, it's an interesting moment because they got to be like, well, what now? So in Zechariah, the big question is like, okay, so that was horrible, and we just got decimated, but we're still here, and so what? Like, is God done with us? Like, do we now just like, those of us that are still alive just kind of get to limp our way on? Or like, did we blow this? Is it permanently over? And that is primarily the question that Zechariah wants to answer. Okay, the judgment came. You survived. It only lasted 70 years. God has brought a restoration. What's going to happen next? And therefore, it, that is the reason that it is, as, just exactly as John said, exceptionally messianic. And in fact, it's 14 chapters long. Pound for pound, verse for verse, there's no more messianic book in the entire Old Testament than Zechariah. It's short little book. There's probably more raw content in Isaiah, but Isaiah is like, you know, six times as long as Zechariah. So Zechariah is this tiny little thing, but is crammed full of information about the Messiah because the Messiah is the answer to the question, right? Is God done with us? Is it all over? Are we done here? And the answer is no, we're not done here. The Messiah is coming. And so lots of stuff is in Zechariah that you would, re you would re oh, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that. It gets quoted something like 75 times in the New Testament. It's a lot. It's a tiny little book. So among them, John, what are some of the Zechariah quotes? Uh, there's another one. Uh, uh, God is speaking through the prophet. He says, and you look on me, whom you pierced. Yes. Then switches the person, and you will mourn for him as, as no even God himself. That's right. So Zechariah has this language that one day Israel, and then John is going to say one day the whole world, is going to look on him whom they have pierced. And when you read it in Zechariah, you're like, I don't even know what that could possibly mean. 
but I bet you know what that could possibly mean, right? John says the day is coming that when Jesus returns, the nation of Israel will realize, oh my gosh, it was him. And we crucified him. And John sees it as a sign not just of judgment, but of, of restoration that, that will come to faith. That what, what has been done will be seen. The 30 pieces of silver prophecy is in there. The behold your king comes gentle on it, riding on a donkey on the colt, the foal of a donkey. That's all Zechariah. Lots and lots of messianic imagery in Zechariah. Zechariah 3, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's Joshua the high priest. And there's this whole picture of Satan accusing and the Lord standing to defend. Zechariah is a good one. 14 chapters, well worth reading. Um, and the high priest is given a crown. That's right. Oh, this is actually, okay, this is really important. Zechariah brings to, into great relief this concept that when the Messiah comes, this is so crazy, when the Messiah comes, he will be priest and king simultaneously. He's going to be a priestly king and a kingly priest. And these are different roles, right? The priests of Israel come from what tribe? Levi. Come from Levi, right? The kings of Israel, where do they come from? From Judah. And so the, it's separation of powers. The priests are over here. The kings are over here. Different things. But Zechariah sees, oh, no, no, no. Someday one will come who will be both priest and king. It's a major theme going on in Zechariah. That's important. Uh, high priest has the same name. Is Joshua. That's right. Yeshua is this high priest. So there's lots of stuff there. Um, do you guys know the, 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 not the psalm. What do you call them? What's the song? Hymn. You know the hymn? Um, there is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. You know that? Zechariah. Zechariah 12, I think. Maybe 13. Let's see. Uh, where is it? It's, uh, maybe it's 13. At the very end of 12, this is the passage that John was quoting. I will pour out on the house of David and its inhabitants a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And then 13, excuse me, 13.1, it says, On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and its inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more. I will remove the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. There's a sense of the day is coming. He's not done with us. This fountain that will cleanse is coming. And we know that all these ideas, all these themes of Zechariah all come together on one man who rides in on a donkey, on one man who will be the fountain, on one man who they will pierce. And so Zechariah, man, that is a book. It's a little bit weird because prophets are weird, but Zechariah is a book really very, very well worth understanding. Robin. One of the girls that, one of the fellows that stayed with us told me that um, that Jews... Don't read Isaiah. That they skip over that part. They don't want that part. But what do they do with Zechariah? Okay, so I've not. I, I absolutely true that they don't read Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53, which is the most crystal clear messianic image in the entire Old Testament, is called the Lost Chapter. In fact, you should go do this. Go to go to YouTube. This is fantastic video this, of this Jewish community that does evangelism in Israel. If you, just, if you go to YouTube and look for like the lost chapter of, of Isaiah, um, and you'll see like there's this magnificent video of these guys um, reading, or some guy reading different excerpts from Isaiah 53 to a Jewish audience, to a, you know, Israeli people, um, and helping them see that it's really about Jesus. It's beautiful. What do they do about this? 
Um, I don't know exactly how they treat Zechariah. I mean, a, a faithful Jew believes that the Messiah is coming. They believe that the Messiah is real. But they probably would not anticipate that he's going to be a sin-bearing Messiah. That's what freaked everybody out. Everybody was expecting the second coming, not the first coming. Um, and so I, my guess would be that if a Jew were to read uh, Zechariah 14, that there's going to be a range of experiences because Jews are no more monolithic than Gentiles are monolithic. Some perhaps would read this and see it, um, understand it, and perhaps others would not. Certainly the majority of unbelieving Jews w- would not see it, but maybe aren't even familiar with it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that the, 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 what 2 Corinthians says uh, is that the God of this age, which is not God, but is Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. And that's certainly, that's true. Jews and Gentiles, that's true. And then as far as, one of the things, like, what do the Jews think when they read this? I'm like, I don't know that they read it any more than the evangelicals read it, you know? I mean, how, how well, how familiar with it are we? So, okay, John. I knew a Christian Jew when I lived in uh, Norfolk about three years ago. Yeah. And he told me before he came, became a Christian uh, in his Jewish synagogue, uh, he'd asked his rabbi about Isaiah. And the rabbi said, don't bother reading that, you'll never understand it. Yeah, sure. So John is saying he's had friends that in a Jewish community, that their, their rabbis had just encouraged them not to bother to read it because it would be incomprehensible to them. So and we need to read it. We need to jump into it. Okay, we got to, Suzanne, you get the last one, and then we got to keep moving. Um, when Cece was living with us, she had an opportunity to have, like, an interview one-on-one with a Jewish rabbi. And she asked him, like, what do you think of the Messiah? And he was kind of like, eh, we don't really think about that at all. Kinda, so, like, that was kind of where he was. Yeah, that's so, that's so rough. That's so sad. And, but once again, there's plenty of Christians that don't think about the Messiah either, you know? So we all need his grace to lift our eyes from worthless things. So, okay, let's, let's go. Any other, any other big ones, and then we'll fill in the gaps in order. We've hit Hosea and Jonah and Nahum and Zechariah. Anybody else got a favorite? Probably not, because these are all unknown books. Okay, so let's go. So Joel, any, you know anything at all about Joel? Locusts, very good. So Joel is full of locusts. It's a, it's a warning of judgment. Some people think that the locusts are metaphors for other, like, you know, army people. Um, others think the locusts are legitimate, like, bugs that are eating everything. I'm in the bug camp. I think these locusts are real locusts. But, like everything else, like, things have, things point to an, a fuller meaning. So Joel is the book of locusts. Judgment is coming. They're going to decimate everything. And then there's one other thing you might know about Joel. Gets quoted in the book of Acts. Yeah. Pouring out of his spirit, right? So we talked about this. You're going to see the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. It's such a significant theme throughout the prophets. Because the day is coming when I'm going to give you my spirit. And so Joel sees this. this the time is going to come where young, how does it go? Young men dream dreams and women prophecy. However, what does the language go? You have it memorized? Young men have visions. Old men dream dreams. Old men dream dreams and young men have visions. But I will pour out my spirit. On everybody. Right. And that's right. And the whole point is the ubiquitousness, the generosity. God gave his spirit in a peculiar way to David. Peculiar way temporarily to Saul. The time is coming. Then all, all those who are in Christ will be indwelt by his spirit. This is that day. It's now. Right. So major theme in Joel. Hosea, Joel, Amos. What do you know about Amos? Anything? Do you know, if, if, if I quoted a line from Amos, you might think of the most, the f- most famous vision-casting speech in American history. 
Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King quotes from this, quotes from this, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. Do you recognize that, the cadences of that? That's Amos. Amos is a book about social justice. And so it's very reasonable that Martin Luther King, when, he's trying to, when he was calling Christians to act like Christians, he appeals to the book of Amos. It says, God cares about justice. Let justice roll on. So Amos is a great book. If you're interested in social justice um, and you read through Amos, you're going to see, man, he really, God really cared about the poor being taken advantage of, about courts being made into places of injustice. Zadjel, Amos is a great book about justice. Okay, Obadiah is a strange one. You guys know what Obadiah is about? Edom. It's about Edom. Okay. I link the word Obadiah with the word obliteration because it's the obliteration of Edom. And what's curious about that is that Edom is not Israel. Edom is a foreign nation. The minor prop, sometimes you can get a sense of like people can believe that the Bible is just written to Christians or the Bible is just written to Jews. God is concerned about the behavior of the nations in the world. And so Edom is a book. So these are not the recipients of the law. These are not the people that Moses has, you know, they're not under the, you know, the heading of Moses. They're actually kind of like the cousin. The Edomites are the the nation that comes out of Jacob's brother Esau and, and God is displeased with their rebellion and their wickedness and he brings judgment on them. So we therefore should be mindful. It is not just here right now in our little house that God is concerned. God cares about the rest of the world and therefore we have the opportunity even as Jonah did to bring a mercy of justice and mercy to people that are presently outside the covenant. Obadiah is short. It's a little tiny book. Um, but if you want to read about the Edomites getting whooped up on, that's your book, okay? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. What's next? Jonah. Jonah. We did that one. What's after that? Micah. Micah. Any, any passages in Micah come to your mind? You know what that one, what's going on in Micah? Oh, man, what is good? Very good. There's a couple things, okay? Uh, do you, can you do that whole, do you have that whole thing memorized, Chris? Do not. I have like two-thirds of it. Okay, look it up. Go ahead. So he's going to go to Micah 6, 8. This is a great text. So Micah 6, 8. But that's what you were quoting. 6, 6 through 6. Oh, right, give us some context. Go ahead and take a look and give it to us. Or give us what you got. Well, eight's just uh, oh, something like, oh, man, what is good to do justice, love kindness, and walk on That's right. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And then there's basically three things. What are the three things, according to Micah 6, 8, that God requires of us? Love justice. Yeah, or act, act, what is it? What's the verb? What for justice? Act, act justice, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, okay? This is a famous passage because it just rolls off the tongue. Like, except that I just mangled it. Um, that God loves justice and mercy. But do you notice, hang on a second, John. Do you notice there's a conflict in that verse? What's the weird, what's the conflict? He's told you what's good. Justice and mercy. Like, which is it? These are not the same thing, right? This tension pervades all of the scriptures over and over and over again. We are told God is just, God is just, God is just. And we're told he is merciful, he is merciful, he is merciful. And that is, that tension is intentional. It's supposed to raise in our minds a sense of like, well, I mean, when push comes to shove, who wins? Is he just or is he merciful? How does this work out? When I was at Penn State, we designed this ad campaign that said a just God 
would punish sin. <laughs> a merciful God would desire to forgive. And then there's a picture of a hand getting crucified with a giant nail going through it. And it says, there must be a way to hammer this out. This is what the gospel, there's this tension that builds all throughout the scriptures. Which is it? Will he be just? Will he be merciful? And the final analysis, what will it be? And God determined a way. It says in 2 Samuel 14, 14, that God devises ways so that banished persons under the threat of justice will not remain estranged from him so they might receive mercy. And the brilliance of the gospel is that God figured out a way to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. He's found a way to destroy sin without destroying sinners. And what we have in Christ is the ultimate solution to the primary problem throughout the Old Testament. How could a good and loving God be just and merciful? How do these things live together? Never, don't miss the fact that Jesus is the, is the resolution to this massive, massive tension. Let the tension build because it's real. And it's going to be very, very costly for God to be both just and merciful. The only way he can do it is if he actually takes into himself the penalty for our sin. There's a story uh, that, I've, that I've heard that kind of illustrates this. I've actually shared this with, with folks when we're trying to make the gospel clear. You may have heard me share it, but I'll do it briefly here. Uh, imagine there's an Indian tribe and there's been a drought and there's a scarcity of resources, right? The, because of the drought, the, everything's, all the plants are dying, the, the animals are moving on and the people are suffering and everywhere they travel in search of water and food and plants, there's nothing. When that happens, people begin selfish. Scarcity can produce a selfishness. And people begin to turn in on themselves and people in the tribe are stealing from others in the tribe. And it's just untenable. We're never going to survive this if people are starting to like go after each other. And so the chief of the tribe, he determines that we're going to have to be very severe on, on theft. And he says the next person caught stealing will be taken to the center of this you know, village thing, tied to a pole and lashed, publicly beaten. There will be, we cannot tolerate this. Within days, a cry goes out for a thief has been captured. And the people come to see who it is. Holy moly, it's the chief's own mother. What is he going to do? Will he be just and carry out the punishment that was clearly described? Or will he be merciful and let her go? It is it's a curious thing to be just to those you love. But the one in charge, uh, and, and he therefore might want to just show mercy. But he can't denigrate justice. He's got to do what is right. So what he does is he has his mom tied to the pole in the center of the room, center of the village. And he has the punisher come forward with his whip. But right before he gives the order that the, that the whipping commence, he steps in between the two of them, places his broad shoulders across her frail back. And with her safely wrapped in, her, in his arms, he demands that the penalty be carried out. And in that moment, he is just for the punishment is carried out, and he is merciful. But the way to be merciful is that he absorbs it into himself. And the tension is resolved. This is the gospel. That God is just, and God is merciful. And it costs him enormously to be both of those things. Right? Love, justice, do, bring it all together. How do we do it? 
Only in Christ can it become fully clear. Catherine? Um, when I was a new believer, I, I found that it was hard to admit sin. And, and I noticed it in other people, too, because, you know, it's always easier to point out their sin. So, but the point was that when I found out that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it's like as long as we know he admits yes indeed, it is sin. And, but, but then there's that promise right away. But if you admit it, then you, then you receive forgiveness and there's freedom. And I used to struggle a lot with that. Yeah, oh, and, and, and well we should. But even, even as you, you, so you quoted 1 John 1, right? That God is faithful and just to forgive our sin. Have you ever noticed that's the strange way to phrase it? If we're talking about God going to forgive your sin, do you really want me talking about his justice? Or would you not prefer that we talked about his mercy? God is faithful and merciful to forgive our sin. What on earth does it mean that he's faithful and just to forgive our sin? How does that work? The only way that that can work, that he's just in forgiving our sin, is if our sins have already been atoned for. That's, a, that's pointing us to the death of Jesus. The reason he is just when he forgives me and not unjust when he forgives me is because the debt has been paid. Right? He's faithful and just. This reminds me that he's poured out his wrath on his son so there'd be none left for me. Exceptional. Sharon? Um, I'm confused a little bit. In verse 8, I thought it's not God talking, but the writer saying he has shown you, old man. Is he talking to us, like men, that we act justly and we love mercy and we walk humbly with our God? That, that's correct. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, so when it says, so the he in verse 8 is God, right? So God has showed us what is good and what the Lord requires of us. He requires us to act justly and to love mercy, right? That's true. But whatever is true of anything that God has ever told us to do, right? When God gives us the law, his laws are never arbitrary. He's never been like, ah, you know, I don't know. Let's not have anybody lie. Like, it's not like he's making stuff up. But the law that he gives us, including these laws, are always a reflection of his own nature. Right? We, it's a revelation of what he, what he wills reflects what he is. So the fact that he is calling us to both justice and mercy means that he is both just and merciful. And, which, and that tension is chiefly resolved on the cross. But then it also means for us, what does it mean for me to be just and merciful? Well, it might very well mean that I end up paying somebody else's bill, right? It might very well mean that in order for me to extend mercy to somebody else, I need to drink the injustice of being taken advantage of, which is rough news. Paul says this, he's like, why do you Christians, why are you Christians suing you Christian? Like, this is madness. Like, you're dragging, Christians are dragging other Christians to court in front of everybody else. Wouldn't you rather just be wronged? Why not rather be taken, taken advantage of? And I think when we read this in Corinthians, we read that, we're like, well, that's insane. But he's like, well, yeah, it is insane, but that's the nature of Christianity. We're, we follow a crucified Messiah who suffers for somebody else's wrongdoing. And then for the rest of time, we're like, I don't want to suffer for anybody else's wrongdoing. Like, that sounds like a terrible idea. But it is absolutely essential to our, our faith is that we, too, would be a people who live in the tension between justice and mercy, and we too would solve that as Jesus did by absorbing pain into our lives. Holy cow. That's 
crazy. Okay, Lily? Um, I was just thinking about the nature of Jesus also being our advocate, but the Holy Spirit and Jesus are called our advocate. And I think for people with a law background in this room, that makes sense. It's talking about Jesus <coughs> as a key witness. That's right. As it was described, but not only does he pay our debts, but then he is continually advocating for us, not saying, have pity on this poor sinner, forgive him again. But look, they're already forgiven. I did it. That's right. And uh, I, so I can't take credit for that because I was just a good tip keller. And that's, that's Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3 is a, is a great picture of that Jesus as advocate. Right. But, it's, but I think also that we, we have it wrong in our minds. Like, that we continually need to be forgiven when we have the Holy Spirit advocating for us, washing us clean continually. Yes. So I think it's a good word because we just forget. It's not once and done. It's an ongoing uh, interaction on our behalf. Okay, so we gotta, we're going we're gonna to finish the Minor Prophets. So we've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Don't forget Micah 5, too. Okay, good. Okay, so, so Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah is where we are. So Micah 5 is another great prophecy. You guys know Micah 5? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are least among the, you know, the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose days are from old, from ancient days. It's, the, it's, what, it's one of your Christmas prophecies. That the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. This is the one that when... Herod called his religious advisors to say, hey, a bunch of weird dudes from like Babylon are here. Where is the Messiah going to be born? Or where is the Messiah going to be born? They're like, easy, Bethlehem, Micah 5. And they quote that passage. So it's one of these predictions, prophecies that Messiah would come and be out of Bethlehem. So that's Micah. Okay, so Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, we did Habakkuk. Okay, Habakkuk's a weird one. You know what Habakkuk is? Habakkuk? I never know how to say it. What? What is it? Doom and gloom. Okay, it really is. A, it's really, it's an interesting, it's almost a story. It's this conversation going on between this prophet and God. And it's really, really odd. Do you remember that? Do you remember what his chief complaint is? It's like a series of complaints. What's his first complaint? How long what? Yeah, basically he's saying he's, he's annoyed that his nation is unjust. He's not happy. He's like, man, this is a wicked, like Israel's a mess. I don't like it. Everything's bad and everybody's sinning and everything's terrible. How long are you going to put up with this? And God says, yeah, 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 I noticed that too. Not to worry. I'm bringing in Babylon. At which point he's like, whoa, that's not what I meant. That's not at all what I meant, okay? This would be, this would be us, I don't know, pick a thing. We're lamenting the state of abortion in America. And like, we're like, man, it's like a million babies die a year. This is terrible, Lord. How long are you going to put up with this? He's like, yeah, 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 I know. No problem. I'm bringing in North Korea. They're going to decimate America. And we're like, no, that's not at all what I was thinking you would do at all, right? And then he's got another complaint. He's like, why do you let people, yeah, 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 we're bad, but they're worse. Why do you let a wicked people swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting <clears throat> exploration into the problem of evil. And then God answers that question. He says, well, just wait, because I'm going to judge Babylon as well. It's a str- watch, watch, follow it, read it. It's short, it's a little thing, it's like three chapters. But it's, it's an exploration into the problem of evil. And how does God stand, how does God tolerate a world so marked by sin, whether it's Israel or Babylon, whether it's the United States or, you know, pick a thing. Like, how, how are we to grapple with this? So it's, again, very under-read, but very, very relevant. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. What the heck? We haven't talked about the thing about Zephaniah. What do you know about Zephaniah? Anything at all? Go 
going to be a remnant. Okay, there's going to be a remnant. And this is almost the theme of all of these things, right? And what else do I hear over here? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Okay, what does that phrase mean? These, this, this is the two points. What, is, what does the day of the Lord mean? Judgment. judgment is coming. Zephaniah is about imminent judgment. It's on us. It's right here. Remember I said that they're like in sequential order, more or less? And the last three are post-exile. Zephaniah is right before post-exile. So where does that put him? Right? I mean, he's like, it's, like, it's like right here, right now. It's about to happen. He's like, all right, we're out of time. It's going to go badly for you. Um, it is not honestly clear if Zephaniah is specifically about Babylon or about some other like skirmish because there's other ways that judgment comes. But Zephaniah is a, is a warning kind of book. Like, it's on us. But like all warnings, they always come with the sense of restoration after the fact. In judgment, God remembers mercy. So if you read through Zephaniah, it's a bit of a downer. It uses that phrase, the day of the Lord. That actually pervades a lot of the prophets. But absolutely, Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. It's coming. It's right here. It's today. Get ready. Kind of like, you know, remember the drills in school where it's like get under your desk or whatever? Like, that's Zephaniah. It's like, get under your desk. Because it's on. All right? Jose Joel Emesodite, Jonah Mechanaim, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. What's next? Anything about Haggai? Anything at all? This is super unknown. Yeah. I have, I have sometimes memorized Haggai and House. They're both the H book. Like, ha, 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 ha. Haggai, House. House meaning temple. So it's kind of like what we're talking about here is Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild the wall around the city. Haggai is about rebuilding the temple. And so you can kind of catch some themes about that. It's all, again, it's the very end. It's the post-exile. It's after the fact. Now we've got to get back. We've got to like, we're going to rebuild the temple. We've got to figure out, is the Messiah really going to come again? And then we'll get to Malichi. We'll come to that in a second. But, so it's, a, it's about the, the rebuilding of the temple. Was he a, was he a contemporary of Ezra? Uh, I, well, that's a good question. I would, probably so. I don't know that, but it, logically that would seem to be like in the Zerubbabel, Ezra kind of window of time. I would think they're all the same, but I don't know if they literally were the same years or not. But yes, that's the same topic, same general time period, if, I'm, if not quite precise. So great. All right, you got Haggai. Zechariah, we did. You guys should go read Zechariah. But when you do, it'll just be super weird, okay? Um, in fact, oh, here's something you could do. If any of these are intriguing to you, just go to YouTube and type in The Bible Project Zechariah. The Bible Project Zephaniah. These guys are brilliant. Their stuff is so accessible. It's like a six or seven minute essay visually depicted on all of them. Their, their, their essay or their video on Zechariah is fantastic. It's so, so well done. So if you're, if anyone, I'm, I'm hoping every week that something will intrigue you. You'd be like, oh, I want to go read that. My, I recommend, my money's on Zechariah. And if you do it, the Bible Project guys will give you a great little, little further, you know, guided tour into that. But those things, if you're ever, if you're reading through your Bible and you just want somebody to sit down with you for five minutes and tell you what's going on here, YouTube, The Bible Project, book of the Bible I care about, is brilliant. It'll be so insightful and so helpful to you. All right? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah we did. And what's the last one? Malachi. Anything from Malachi stick out in your mind? Any, any quotes? Yes. Okay, so. Some pastors love this book because it's a pro-tithe book, right? How, how are they robbing God, Gary? Uh, in their tithes and offerings. That's right. Test me in this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not pour out on you so much blessing that you can't even contain it. So we like Malachi because it talks about money. What else is going on in Malachi? Uh, Malachi prophecies that uh, 
before the great terrible day of the Lord, he's going to send you life. This is a really big deal, okay? Before the great, in fact, let's, let's look at this. this. This matters. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he's going to send Elijah. Do you remember this? This is a strange thing. When, when Jesus shows up and people are trying to make sense of like, who is this guy? And before Jesus, somebody else shows up. Who are they trying to make sense of before they were trying to make sense of Jesus? John, John the Baptist. So you got these two really weird dudes roll onto the scene. And there's this trying like, who? What's going on? And there's a question, are you Elijah? Are you, is this, are you Elijah? And when, when they ask that question, you're like, why are you asking them if they're Elijah? Elijah's been gone for hundreds of years. It's Malachi 4. It says, it says this, 4-5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's the very last passage in the Old Testament, at least the way we have it ordered. And who is, who is Elijah? What's the answer to that riddle? It is John the Baptist. Jesus makes it abundantly, explicitly clear that John came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the fulfillment of that prediction. Somebody's job was to come and to say, hey, you guys, guys, wake up, and to begin to like, turn people's hearts back in the right direction as a, as a predecessor. I'm studying John's gospel right now, different John. But in the midst of studying John's gospel, it's been a little bit surprising to me how prominent John the Baptist really is. He had a magnificently important role, more than I think I'd appreciated just even in the last month. Um, and that's, that's coming out of this Malachi prediction that God is going to send someone. Yeah. Two witnesses in the end time season, one of them is again Elijah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a strange thing. So John uses this language of... Um, uh, in, in Revelation, the very, very end of the Bible, they have these, this picture of these two witnesses. And it's, um, it's Moses and Elijah, right? Am I wrong about that? And so I think that ge- what generally, when John uses them, I think what he's, what he's depicting is that the law, so the law and the prophets are the two major sections of the Old Testament. And Moses, of course, is the giver of the law. And Elijah is like preeminent among the prophets. So I think when John uses them, it's this, it's a reference to the totality of what we have in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Not just the two particular people, but the contributions and the camps of these people. I think is what John is going after there. Okay. Yes. Rita. Um, we were talking about coming to the spirit of Elijah. Um, my Bible says, um, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And I was always taught that when it talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord, yeah, that, I think that, that is. So, um, okay, we'll do this in like a minute. So the Old Testament, um, when, the, when the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Messiah, we, Bob, Bob kind of mentioned this the other day, it, it shows us the mountain range. Like, here it is. Here's the coming of the Lord. And we see things that are accomplished in the first coming and things that are accomplished in the second coming as if it's just like the day of the Lord. Now, we, we're able to have, we have this vantage point. We're like, oh, my gosh, there's like a lot of time in between the two. But the Old Testament, rarely do we see any kind of hint that these two things are not, you can't, this is hard to tell. This is easy to tell, right? But he's like, I don't know, it's just all right there. And so, um, when, so it is true that Elijah, that John the Baptist comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord. But he also comes before this day of mercy, right? But when Jesus comes, he's setting, into, he's setting into play the entire eschaton. Like, we are living right now. This is the end times. It's been the end times for 2,000 years. 
from the time that God steps on the earth, a man is raised from the dead, Satan is, is defeated. We're, we're living in that. It's just a prolonged stretch. It's a thick mountain range is all that we'd say. Yeah, okay. Jesus is coming twice, okay? Okay, yep. Herrick, go for it, Bubba. You know, our perception, another thing on that is our perception of time is different than God's. A thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a strange thing. Like, this is, there's this great line in, uh, in Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan tells Lucy that something will happen soon. And, he, and she just says, oh, Aslan, what do you call soon? <laughs> and he's like, man, soon to me is like five minutes. And to him... It doesn't seem that way. I think his response is actually, I'll call all times soon. Ugh. How about right now? Okay, so there you go. Twelve minor prophets, five major prophets. You got the history books. You got it all. All we wanted to do, we couldn't cover everything in depth, but I wanted to give you enough, I hope, I hope, maybe, some tantalizing hints that you're like, I'm curious, and I'm going to make it a point to read the history books. I'd like to understand how these kings worked out. I now know where Kings and Chronicles and Samuel all fit together. I'm going to check those out. Or maybe you're just intrigued by Jeremiah and you're going to say, I'm going to make it a point. I'm going to read Jeremiah this month. Or maybe you're going to take a swing at, maybe you don't like Zechariah. That's fine. I do. But, you know, have it added in Zephaniah if you're into like imminent judgment. If that's your thing, go for it. Right? But you guys, two things, two things. It's filled with treasure and you can find it. Just a little bit of time. 15 minutes a day. Just a little bit. Lay it down. Lay it down. It's full of great stuff that you'll discover. Okay? All for now. Thank you.